Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name is Frank and let's get cracking. So we've got some recent events again today because there's been some pretty monumental things happening over the last couple of weeks. Now, some of this is the kind of thing that I wanted to just let settle, gather my thoughts on what's actually happened and and digest it a little bit. So a couple of the things in here are, are very recent from the last few days. And some of the things that are in here are actually from a little little bit longer ago. But as you'll sort of understand from the, the nature of what I'm talking about, it's some quite in-depth stuff. So not really the kind of thing you can just listen to and immediately formulate your thoughts on. So what I like to do with these episodes is really let it sit for a bit, you know, get, get the bigger picture and, and see how things unfold and, and then go through it. So... The main one that we're going to get cracking with is Tim McMillan's new bombshell article. So for anybody who's not aware, Tim McMillan is the founder of The Debrief, uh, which is at thedebrief.org and is a reliable source for great information on science, technology, things to do with like discovery of the universe, and also uh, the UAP UFO topic as well. And Tim basically tweeted on the 10th of April that Quote, it's not often you get to share the results of an over-year-long investigation that helped send a shockwave through the DOD's global intelligence and security operations and dot 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 UFOs. This week, I'll be doing just that, unquote. So, that was pretty exciting. And as soon as I saw that tweet, I knew something big was coming. And somebody had commented on Twitter you know, asking Tim about a, a scale of one to ten in terms of significance. And Tim responded, quote, This is something the UFO community may not really understand and may not initially appreciate the significance, but it is by far the most significant public service journalism I've ever done. And within the DOD, it was a level 10 shockwave, unquote. So, safe to say, I was even more excited to see what was going to happen after seeing that. Uh, and then, a couple of days later, on April the 13th, the bombshell dropped. So, the article came out on the debrief, and the article was entitled, Sex, Lies and UFOs, Pentagon's Head of Counterintelligence and Security Ousted. And... It definitely made a splash, got everybody talking. And the article starts out with the following uh, paragraph, which I'm just going to quote because I think it's a, a very good uh, you know, introduction. So, quote, As the Pentagon's director for defense intelligence and a senior executive in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security... Gary Reed was in charge of all counterintelligence, security and law enforcement operations within the Department of Defence. Before his ousting, 
Reed had been subject of a nearly two-year-long investigation by the debrief. Speaking on condition of anonymity, multiple current and former Pentagon employees told the debrief Reed has engaged in wide-ranging misconduct and corruption for years. According to a report of investigation obtained by the debrief via the Freedom of Information Act, in late 2019, Reed was investigated by the DOD's Inspector General's office regarding four separate complaints of him having sexual affairs with subordinate employees, sexual harassment, and creating a negative work environment, unquote. So, pretty big stuff, really, that. And essentially, the article goes on to talk about multiple serious allegations of sexual harassment and um, a, a pretty monumental mishandling of the Afghan refugee crisis, which Gary Reid was was uh, played a, a big part in. And it, and it seems overall, you know, to put it very bluntly, this, this man is a, a scumbag. You know, and, and I would suggest that. You know, this is actually another good example of Lou Elizondo being proven right. I mean, we hear a lot of criticism of Lou from certain corners of UFO Twitter, but I, I've said many times in the past, you you can't fault his track record, and and this really is quite a big vindication for Lou Elizondo. I mean, he's put his name on the line many times over the years. And and the majority, the vast majority, he's he's been right on. He's been on the right side of history. I remember hearing an interview with Lou where he was asked about Gary Reed, and the name stuck in my head because of the similarity with Harry Reed. But other than that, I didn't know anything about the man. Um, now, having read this article, I do recognise him, and I've seen. I remember seeing him in Pentagon briefings and things. Sometimes he's he stood off to the side and and these kinds of things. So he's been a very prominent figure for for years now. And uh, Lou's comments some some months ago, something along the lines of not a direct quote, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, my mother always told me that if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything. And that was when he was asked directly about Gary Reed. I think I talked about this on the podcast at the time that he said it. And then Lou basically left it at that. Now, I actually thought maybe that's a little bit harsh, you know, not knowing anything about the guy. I just assumed that they had personal disagreements or something. Um, and anyway, now it's come out that those comments actually make a lot more sense. Not at all harsh. And actually, it's yet another case of Lou Elizondo being on the right side of history. You know, imagine for a second that this was the other way around. Gary Reed, you know, turned out to be a really nice guy, like a national hero without a blemish on his name. You would kind of start to question Lou Elizondo, like why has he been slating this guy? But that's not what played out. And what played out actually backs up everything that Lou was saying. And I think that shows not only was Lou correct about Gary Reed. But it also backs up Lou's version of events in terms of the corruption and unsavoury characters holding up progress behind the scenes and, and the, the removal of dead wood in the DOD being so necessary. Not only that, the article goes on to specifically hone in on the way that the UAP issue and Lou himself were affected by Reed. Quote, According to Elizondo and several current and former defence officials that the debrief spoke with, the Pentagon's inconsistent messaging on Elizondo's involvement in ATIP and general aversion to being open about his interest in UAP is in large part due to one person, Lou Elizondo's former boss at OUSDINS, or as one current senior intelligence official worded it when speaking with the debrief quote gary effing reed unquote so <laughs> i'm not gonna i'm gonna keep it clean uh, so that it's pg rated but yeah you can imagine what the effing word in there is if you've got any sense and it actually seems that that reed really was the ringleader of going after lou elizondo you know, which is something that's caused a lot of difficulty and confusion for anybody who's looking into what actually went on with Lou and ATIP, not to mention the intense personal turmoil of Lou himself having had his good name dragged through the mud. You know, it's it's uh, it's really quite a, 
a big thing this that that Lou Elizondo has been saying all this stuff for such a long time the official line that the the DOD the Pentagon were putting out was totally contradicting what Lou had said and now this this essentially proves that Lou Elizondo was was bang on this whole time and the article goes on to talk about that according to documents related to the May 2021 Inspector General complaint filed by Lou Elizondo um, which was apparently seen by the debrief shortly after Lou's resignation on October the 5th 2017 Lou Elizondo actually received a call from his former boss Gary Reed and uh, Reed was apparently clearly upset and wanted to know you know what was going on with his Lou's resignation and demanded a meeting with him and so on and, and and when Lou actually declined this invitation to have a meeting, apparently there was a, all manner of threats ensued, including apparently saying that he was going to tell people that he was crazy and that it might impact his security clearance. Now, we've heard Lou talking about that a lot in interviews, but now we know exactly the circumstances around that and who it was that he was referring to. And... Uh, Lou apparently also received several phone calls from former colleagues at the OUSD INS warning him that Reed and uh, employee one, who is referred to as employee one for anonymity in the IG complaint, were coming after him. Now, there has been some speculation about who employee one is, but apparently it's not Susan Goff, who is now the uh, Pentagon spokesperson. Um, Tim McMillan was asked about this on Twitter yesterday and he actually said that it's not Susan Goff so that eliminates one person who, who a lot of people might be listening to this may think that it is apparently it's not um, so anyway but what is very clear there is that Gary Reed has been conspiring with other people to directly go after Lou Elizondo um, you know, which is, it does kind of make you feel for Lou. I mean, he's he's literally done what he considered to be the right thing, and they they, they really kind of sent the the dogs after him. You know, which is a pretty horrendous position that it must have been to be in. Now, initially, when all of the revelations about ATIP first came into the the, the public eye in around about two thousand and seventeen, the the then pentagon spokesperson dana white actually did acknowledge that lou elizondo ran atip but then they, they went back on that and in spring of 2019 the the dod's kind of official statements were that lou elizondo didn't have any responsibilities regarding atip and you know this obviously had the effect of making lou look like a liar and not only you know lou's determination and drive was the, the reason that he managed to essentially prove who he actually is. You know, he, he's proved now that he is who he says that he is. But unless Lou had actually really dug his heels in and, and gone through the necessary steps to try and prove that, the, all the public would have is an official statement directly coming from the DOD saying that Lou Elizondo had no responsibilities within ATIP and it just goes to show if you just if you don't scratch beneath the surface and you take what what's being said by you know the DOD or whatever other department you're not always going to get the full picture and this is really a shocking example of that I mean Lou's had to basically go through the trenches for years now to finally get this kind of indication which is um, quite shocking really and uh, essentially, after three years of these attempts to clean his name, you know, clear his name and, and set the record straight, Lou Elizondo eventually did form a, uh, file a formal complaint with the DOD's Inspector General Office in May 2021. And the article goes on to say, uh, quote, in unclassified documents reviewed by the debrief, Elizondo accused Reed of malicious activities, coordinated disinformation, professional misconduct, whistleblower reprisal and explicit threats. In the cover letter to his complaint, Elizondo said, I am fully aware of the magnitude of my allegations against certain individuals in the department and I am able to substantiate these claims. Unquote. 
And Tim McMillan was actually on Andy's That UFO podcast as well over the last couple of days. And he's, he's confirmed that the suspect number one in terms of who's listed in that IG rep, um, complaint is Gary Reed. So, I mean, this is the guy who's responsible for sending the, the dogs after Lou Elizondo, basically, and, and really, you know, going after him to try and besmirch his name. And uh, a direct quote here from Lou Elizondo, which is mentioned in the article, quote, I was aware of his perceived misconduct and could not risk the integrity of the program by involving him. Last I heard, he was coaching Pentagon spokesperson Susan Goff how to respond to inquiries by the media about me. This would explain the obvious inaccuracies provided to the media about me by Ms. Goff, unquote. And this is absolutely shocking. And, and you know, it does make you wonder, the people that, that Gary Reid has had around him, you know, there must be a lot of people within the DOD, especially, you know, quite high up, really, who must have been complicit in what he was doing, must have worked with him and potentially broke some laws here. And it does make you wonder, Susan Goff herself, who has, who has been the one, to, the mouthpiece, essentially, for what Gary Reid has been trying to put across behind the scenes, you know, have they broken laws? Is there going to be a knock-on effect? Is there going to be other heads roll? And you have to think that there must be. I mean, if, if Susan Goff has literally been directly conspiring with Gary Reid, you know, somebody who's now been named and shamed, you know, somebody who's basically been kicked out for, you know, terrible things. You know, not just about UFOs, obviously, as well. We're talking about a, a horrendous, you know, handling of the, the Afghan refugee crisis. We're talking about, you know, serious sexual assault allegations as well, which I'm not really going to be focusing on here because this is a podcast about UFOs. So obviously I'm going to be talking mostly about that. But, you know, this is somebody who's, who's really done some pretty shocking things and and basically a scumbag and the importance of this man having been ousted cannot be underestimated for the ufo topic not only is he basically a scumbag like i said from a personal point of view but he's also apparently tried to obstruct efforts to further investigate uap incidents for years going back to the article Quote, the same read that multiple defence officials say has not only maintained a years-long vendetta against Elizondo, but also played a central role in obstructing efforts to formally investigate it, purported UAP sightings going back to at least late 2017. To conclude then, not only does this boost Lou Elizondo's credibility... It also significantly improves the chances of more transparency as things go along. You know, the, the actual ultimate reason that Gary Reed has finally been dismissed from the DOD remains a bit unknown at this point. It's like, it sounds a bit like whatever it is could just be like a, a case of the, the straw that, that broke the camel's back. You know, there's been a, a mounting you know list of of misconduct things that have happened and, and something perhaps has tipped it over the edge where they've gone we can't have this anymore um difficult to say exactly what it was that's caused the the ousting and and the specific circumstances around the ousting are not exactly clear at this point i think um it's worth mentioning actually that jazz shaw actually reached out uh, Jazz Shaw, another journalist who, who you probably may know if you if you follow the UFO topic, writes for the debrief and uh, has has had many sightings of his own as well. And uh, Jazz Shaw actually reached out to the uh, public affairs office to, to to clarify whether or not Gary Reid had actually been ousted and so on. And Gary uh, Gary Reid, apparently, according to the public affairs office, is still. Uh, within his role uh, so jazz shaw was told but tim mcmillan did actually clarify this in some great detail when he was on andy's that ufo podcast and he he mentioned that the way that these things worked is quite complicated so he may still be showing on their system as having the role that he has and it takes quite some time for him to basically be fully removed as such it's it's quite complicated and, and the best way to be able to get the nuances of this is to actually go and check out that 
Tim McMillan interview on that UFO podcast. And, and by the way, as I always say, the best thing to do is to read this article. It's quite a long read, but given how important this development is, I think it really is worth a read. And it, obviously, it's the debrief.org, and you can read the entire Tim McMillan article there and you know get it from the horse's mouth, which is always something that you should do if you're interested in what I'm talking about, because you're only hearing what I thought from the article. You might read it and think of something completely different. But anyway, the so the, the the point is is that Gary Reed basically is still technically in his role, but he's going through the process of being ousted at the moment. The actual specifics of it are unclear exactly how he has been ousted, what he has been ousted for, and you know that kind of thing. But, you know, it According to Tim McMillan, it, he's absolutely confident that, that Reed actually has been ousted and it's just a matter of time until the Pentagon actually officially um, you know, acknowledge that publicly. It actually says in the article that when the debrief actually reached out to public affairs to clarify if Reed had voluntarily resigned or was terminated, the Department of Defence declined to comment so again, they're not really willing to, to comment on it at this stage in time, but it definitely seems that, you know, if when you read the article, you can weigh up the evidence for yourself, but I would suggest that it seems that it is actually the case that this has happened. Now, Lou Elizondo goes on to give a couple more quotes as well, which we'll finish off with and move on to the next uh, topic. So, quote, Although I cannot confirm... What ultimately led to his termination? I can surmise that it was caused in part by information contained in my Inspector General complaint. It's really a big deal. He was one of the biggest obstacles to the DOD's investigations and public transparency of unidentified aerial phenomena. As I indicated before, those involved in the purposeful and deliberate obfuscation of the truth will be held accountable. We are now seeing this process in action, unquote. So you've got to think Lou Elizondo must have popped open a bottle of something to celebrate when this, you know, has come out because he's been banging his head against a brick wall on that particular side of things for a long, long time. And I'm just glad to see that, you know, Lou Elizondo's really had a, some vindication there. And hopefully... Now Gary Reed has gone. If it if it indeed is the case that he's been holding back, you know the the transparency on this topic. Hopefully we are going to see some you know some some new blood come in. As as Lou Elizondo himself has said actually a couple of times recently, he said that he was he's been very uh, refreshed to see that things are changing and his old office is now going through you know a, a refreshment stage where they're getting rid of some of the dead wood and, and they're bringing in new people who are much more along the right lines of, of what the right thing is to do and um that that's why Lou elizondo has been making this these comments i would imagine because he's probably heard on the grapevine that this this was uh was imminent and now we all know what's happened so hopefully in the future we will see some more transparency coming from these top levels and uh, it will be interesting to see what unfolds as, as the time goes along. So, moving on from that then, we have an article from Avi Loeb about an interstellar object. So, according to an article published by Avi Loeb on his Medium account on the 7th of April, so this is going back a little, a few days now, in the same week, announcing the closest and farthest objects from outside our cosmic neighbourhood. Now, the discovery came about as follows. On March the 31st, 2019, Avi did a radio interview about a meteor over the Bering Sea, which was spotted off Kamkatcha's Peninsula on December the 18th, 2018, after producing a blast with... 10 times the energy of the atomic bomb over Hiroshima. In preparation for this particular interview, Avi had apparently searched online and came across a catalogue of all the meteors over the past three decades, ordered by like the strength of fireball that they produced. So I actually had a look at that as well, and you can find it online. 
If you go to Avi's article, there's actually a link embedded in the article that you can go and check out. And if you just type in Avi Loeb Medium, you can find that. Avi Loeb is A-V-I-L-O-E-B. And uh, his Medium uh, account is, is where he posts a lot of his articles as well as doing articles for other websites and, and blogs and things. So I had a look at the actual thing that he's talking about. And I have to say, it really is truly shocking to see how many impacts there have been and it shows basically a world map which is just peppered with sites impact sites from 1988 all the way through to present date and you can actually filter off the size of the impact and even when you filter it off to like impacts the size of you know an atomic bomb there's still peppered impacts all over this world map and and that's only over the last like you know 30 years and it does remind you how fragile our existence actually is. I mean, we're flying through the abyss on a rock, <laughs> hurtling through a cosmic shooting gallery, as, as Randall Carlson has said in the past. And I, I know this. I know that there are impacts and things hit this planet on a regular basis, but to see it on a map plotted out like that, these enormous impacts, you know, it, it really is quite shocking, and it does remind you of the fragility of our existence on this little rock hurtling through space. Now, these objects were discovered by a, a classified set of sensors owned by the US government, which determined the three-dimensional components of their velocity and location at the time of impact. And um, speaking of velocity, I was kind of curious as to how fast this object actually was traveling, because we're talking about an object here which is you know, known as basically interstellar, so in other words, not from our solar system. And how fast is something like that going to be traveling when it flies into our solar system and whizzes past the earth and in some cases actually impacts the earth and i was able to find that according to an article on lifescience.com the object was actually traveling at wait for it 130,000 miles per hour so it feels pretty fast to me when i'm flying down the motorway at 70 or maybe dare i say at 75 occasionally and um you know that's 70 miles an hour or 75 or maybe you know a bit faster 130,000 miles an hour now it's hard to even picture that isn't it so i thought let's have a think about some other units of measurement to, to translate that into something that's a bit easier to picture and uh, it essentially equates to 36.11 miles per second now if you imagine how far a mile is imagine traveling a mile in a second and then imagine traveling 36 miles per second absolutely insane speed and that's also, by the way, just for anybody who understands kilometres, that's 58.11 kilometres a second. So that is a pretty fast speed for a, a big chunk of rock or whatever it is, hurtling through, you know, the abyss into our planet. So the article goes on to say, quote, The interstellar meteor discovered by my student, Amir Siraj, and me in 2019 is indeed of interstellar origin this meteor detection dating back to january the 8th 2014 predated umuamua by almost four years and should be recognized as the first interstellar object ever discovered unquote now this object in question was a meteor a meter sized meteor detected as it burned up in the Earth's atmosphere, which was apparently near Papua New Guinea on January the 8th, 2014 at 17.05 UTC. Now, this was really interesting because I'd previously talked about Oumuamua on the podcast and it was, uh, the f it, you know, previously was thought to be the first interstellar object ever detected. But now this this particular object appears to predate Oumuamua and is now classed as the first interstellar object ever discovered. Apparently, the original discovery paper was actually declined from publication because the error bars on the meteor data were classified. Now, it took three years to actually get the government to confirm that this meteor is interstellar, and apparently they have 99.999% confidence that that is the case. 
and we know that this was the closest object ever detected from outside the solar system. Pretty close if it's actually crashed into the planet. And the article goes on to say, but within a day, this important revelation was followed by a press release from my research group on the farthest object ever detected, which was a galaxy named HD1, discovered by the Subaru Telescope, Vista Telescope, UK Infrared Telescope, and Spitzer Space Telescope. This galaxy is inferred to have a redshift of 13, meaning that it emitted its light only 300 million years after the Big Bang. So it's really quite fascinating as the article's pointing out there that we've discovered what we've discovered is the closest ever object from outside of the solar system, you know, and also the furthest most distant objects from outside of our solar system. And those discoveries were both made in the same week. Now, what all of this made me think of is that the James Webb telescope what might the James Webb be able to discover if we've managed to observe this most distant object using the existing technologies that we already had? Imagine what new breakthroughs the James Webb might be able to find. And apparently as well, the fact that they've managed to actually locate this object, it actually can help with giving indications as to where might be a good place to look for the James Telescope as well. Also, the thing that I was considering with this is this is just the first interstellar object that we've ever detected. It's not to say that there haven't been interstellar objects crashing into the planet in the past. It's just that this was the, the one that was actually detected and we were able to take measurements and determine because of its trajectory and the speed of it, etc. that, you know, it definitely was interstellar. And, you know, when you consider about the possibility of hitching a ride on one of these objects, you know, and perhaps whether some non-human intelligence could have actually done that. You know, perhaps this object, because we don't know anything about this object really, other than its trajectory and speed, what happens if it actually was some kind of a remnant of an ancient civilization from way out there in, in the universe or maybe that civilization no longer exists maybe they do still exist maybe this was a probe you know and if they did send a probe would we even recognize it like Oumuamua is suspected to be potentially some remnants of a, an ancient civilization from somewhere out there in the universe but we just don't know we see it flying by it has characteristics that we can't explain but we don't really have the technology to be able to 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 retrieve data on it fast enough to be able to make any determinations but i was thinking imagine if we were able to find traces of biological life on an interstellar object and we've we've only kind of just got to the stage in the last couple of decades of being able to to even detect these kind of things let alone be able to catch up to one that's flying by perhaps and sending a probe onto it taking samples and coming back and things like that are bound to happen as we go along but there's also the possibility of retrieving the actual object itself and apparently there are efforts underway to actually do just that and the way that they're trying to do that is to use very powerful magnets to actually trawl the seabed in the location where they think this object actually ploughed into the sea and then they may be able to actually retrieve the object and then measure its you know composition and various different things about it and determine you know more about what it is where it's come from very difficult i would imagine you know we're talking about going out to, to somewhere in the middle of the ocean and trying to find something which you know crashed into it quite some years ago so whether or not they'll be successful remains to be seen but in the future as our technology gets better and better you'd have to think that that might become easier to do they could you know have better ability to be able to recover things and detect them coming in in the first place although i can't imagine it'd be particularly easy to detect something that's coming forward at one hundred and thirty thousand miles an hour but as the technology improves the ability to do that will also improve it also comes down to if there's sufficient funding available, you know, because you could have a, a rapid response team, for example, to detect things and then go to the location where they're going to impact. And that would drastically increase the chances of finding remnants of, of objects. 
you know, just imagine what you might be able to learn from studying an object that has come from way out there, distant in the universe, and, and actually flown all the way to our little planet and crashed here. Fascinating to think about. It's actually worth considering as well. There was another article I was reading which actually just came out a couple of days ago as I record this, where it talks about how the information was verified in a little bit more detail. And it says, last month, the US Space Command released a memo to NASA scientists that stated... Uh, the data from missile warning satellite sensors was sufficiently accurate to indicate an interstellar trajectory for this particular meteor, the one that was the, um, the you know, the first confirmed interstellar object. And the publication of that memo was basically a result of three years of effort by um, Mr. Siraj and uh, Avi Loeb. And, but it also says in this article, which is a New York Times article, that uh, many scientists, including those at NASA, say that the military still has not released enough data to confirm the interstellar origins of the space rock. And um, a spokeswoman said that space, space Command would defer to other authorities on the question. But it wasn't the only information about meteors that was actually released, because the military apparently also handed NASA decades of secret military data on the brightness of hundreds of other fireballs or bolides and it says in the article quote it is an unusual degree of visibility of a set of data coming from that world unquote and that's from uh, somebody called matt daniels who's the assistant director for space security at the white house's office of science and technology policy who actually was instrumental in working on this particular data being being released in this memo it goes on to say, quote, we're in this renewed period of excitement and activity in space programs generally. And in the midst of that, I think thoughtful leaders in multiple places said, you know, now is a good time to do this, unquote. And that, that, as I was reading that, it just to me kind of ties in with a lot more of this increased transparency. I mean, increased you know excitement about trying to discover what's going on with humans place in the universe and perhaps i am slightly biased because i'm fascinated by the ufo topic and, and anything to do with space and all this kind of thing and um, so you know i i would notice things like that a little bit more but it does seem that there's more of a kind of awareness now of people who are in the positions of knowledge and power and you know in these kind of more secret departments and things like that that you know, look, the public is really interested in this stuff and we perhaps do need to be a bit more open and transparent. And it sort of goes back to that thing of, I'm not naive enough to think that everything should be declassified and, you know, it should just be a completely open book because that's very dangerous, isn't it? I mean, like, especially with something like this, we're talking about the most sophisticated sensors to detect objects coming into the, you know, the Earth's atmosphere and things like that those same sensor systems are detecting any potential missiles coming in or you know anything that might be sent from adversaries and things so there's a, there's a real tricky crossover in in fact in general something i'm noticing is that there is quite a lot of crossover between sensor systems that might pick up ufos and those same sensor systems picking up other things that are serious national security concerns and you could say the same thing about some of these studies into injuries picked up in the brain you know the one i've talked about recently the, the kit green and gary nolan study into to brain injuries and as we know now has been mentioned you know publicly there is definitely some crossover there between havana syndrome which is suspected to be some kind of human in origin like in, in other words a, a state actor you know an, an adversary using some kind of sophisticated weaponry to target humans and um you know and actually uap exposure which can cause injuries as well and i've talked about that a bit i'm not going to go into it in too much detail now but it's quite clear that there is a crossover there you know some of it and it, the percentages of what is what would would be open to interpretation but it, it is interesting that that we we're in this period now of of 
it is recognized by the people who hold the keys to a lot of these secrets that we need to be more transparent we need to share this data with scientists which is what is happening now with this um you know the discovery of these these objects there is more of a an understanding that that needs to happen but also at the same time it opens up a whole new can of worms into um how to do that without giving away any information that could be dangerous you know so it kind of opens up that wider question of how to be more transparent which is the right thing to do but how to do that safely and the more i look into these kinds of things the more i kind of understand a bit more of why this secrecy has persisted for so long because I mean, if you're looking at a, a study of objects coming into the Earth's atmosphere, let's say, as an example, you've got 100 objects that have come into the Earth's atmosphere that have been picked up by the most sophisticated sensors that the US, again, just as an example, has got. Even if one or two of those objects could potentially be an adversary, you know, launching some kind of you know top secret aircraft or surveillance system or some satellite or whatever even if there's a suspicion that it might be even one or two out of the hundred the safest thing to do would be to just classify the entire thing and and i'm not suggesting that that's the right thing to do but when you're talking about issues such as national security it's kind of arguable that you know playing it on the safe side would be better you know and i think that is the reason for a lot of the the classification but it is good on the other hand that now it is becoming more of a you know a realization that actually that might be holding certain things back you know we need to be able to be more transparent but it is a balancing act of how to do that and allow you know the top scientists in the world access to really really important data that can facilitate further discoveries but at the same time how to do that safely and not give information away to the people you don't want to have that information anyway we're going to move on to quite a big and intense one here so this is Salvatore Pais on the Theories of Everything podcast. Now this actually happened a little while ago, but it's just such a heavy topic that I've been trying to wrap my own head around it. And um, I think I've done a reasonably okay job, but obviously what we're talking about here is extremely intense science. And um, yeah, I, I've, I've tried to get my head around it as best I can. And I'll present to you my layman's terms understanding of it so it's an absolutely fascinating interview and just to give a little bit of background on Pais Wikipedia describes him as an American air aerospace and engineer and inventor he formerly worked at the naval air station in Patuxent River I don't know if I'm saying that right but uh, anyway his patent applications on behalf of his employers have attracted international attention for their potential military and energy producing applications, but also doubt about their feasibility and speculation that they may be misinformation intended to mislead the United States adversaries or a scam. Now, I've heard a lot about these patents over the years. But there wasn't all that much to really get stuck into, as a lot of it was hearsay, hard to verify, and so on. And that still kind of is the case, I guess, to some extent. But at least now we're hearing this directly from you know the man himself. And um, I was very excited to watch this interview, as a lot of other people were. And basically, during the time that Salvatore Pais worked for the Navy patents were filed using some of the theories and ideas that he's been working on his patent applications include now some of these are quite intense so bear with me on uh, pronunciations etc uh, his patent applications include a piezoelectricity induced room temperature superconductor with the function of enabling the transmission of electrical power with no losses a plasma compression fusion device described by popular mechanics as a, a compact nuclear fusion reactor that seemingly stretches the limits of science an electromagnetic field generator and methods to create an electromagnetic field 
the principal stated application of which is to deflect asteroids that may hit the Earth. Quite fitting, actually, considering what I've just been talking about. And that patent apparently is assigned to the US Secretary of the Navy. A craft using an inertial, inertial mass reduction device, uh, one sort of use of which could be a high-speed hybrid aerospace slash undersea craft able to engineer the fabric of our reality at the most fundamental level the patent application for which was supported by the naval aviation enterprises chief technical officer on the grounds that the chinese military were already developing similar technology and also a high frequency gravitational wave generator that may be used for advanced propulsion asteroid disruption and or deflection and communications through solid objects so obviously there's some very interesting concepts uh, there and there's been a lot of speculation about these patents these various patents including that some of the science behind it was shown to be demonstrable now apparently one of the head honchos in in the navy actually stepped in to verify that this technology was demonstrable leading to some leading some to speculate that perhaps working versions of these craft have actually been developed using this technology so basically what i've just mentioned is a couple of areas that i was quite keen to hear some clarification on regarding all of this so the first one there was is there technology that's being shown in these patents is it all a bluff is it a red herring that's been thrown out for you know adversaries to kind of be, be led down a blind alley while the u.s actually work on other tech which which really works now one of the people who's mentioned that that, that is a possibility is ross Coltart in his book and very interestingly kurt during the course of this interview actually directly asks you know look Many people have said, including Ross Coltart in his excellent book, In Plain Sight, are these uh, basically like a red herring? Are they, you know, I'm paraphrasing obviously here, but he asks him directly, is it sort of a bluff? And Pais' response to that is absolutely not. I mean, he, he says it very, very clearly there that it's not. And he goes on to say that, if you actually look at the the, the technology, the, the maths and the physics behind his, his patents, that they absolutely do stack up from a mathematical and a physics point of view. And then he goes on to actually go into the actual equations themselves, which, you know, I'll freely admit it's completely over my head. I'm not a physicist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, and I kind of vaguely follow the thread of what he's saying, but without being able to really understand the nuances of these equations, I'm not going to pretend that, that oh yeah, I've, I've done maths and it adds up because I don't know. But it certainly seems that he himself is absolutely convinced of the fact that the maths and the physics behind these patents really does work. Now, he also makes a bit of a cryptic comment about, you know, th this is real science and we've, we've left it out there in plain sight. Obviously, a bit of a play on, on Ross's book title. And Kurt, God bless him, and thank you for doing this, Kurt, follows up on it and he actually says, what do you mean by that? And uh, Pais then goes on to actually explain that what it is is that the actual maths and the physics of these patents does stack up, but they left out some of the secret source, as he puts it. So essentially, it is all correct, but it wouldn't be actually operable. You wouldn't be able to use this the science in these patents to create anything because that would be a national security concern if if anybody had access to it and key elements of the actual process of of the uh, of the maths and the science behind this have been left out of the patents specifically so that you know people can't develop the tech so really interesting because that's something that i really wanted to hear cleared up by this interview you know his pers perspective on it and it seems very clear with that he's saying there that this is real in terms of it's not a scam, it's not a red herring, but some of the key elements of it have been left out of the patents. And, and you can go and listen to that yourself if you are interested uh, in doing so, and you can hear it for yourself. It's, it's, it's the early, early on in the interview, actually, and um, 
it really is going listening to the worth going listening to the whole thing. It's, it's one of the most fascinating interviews I think I've heard in years. It really is mind blowing, and and Kurt is absolutely the right person to be doing the, this kind of interview because he actually understands all of the science and things like that, and manages to break it down in a way that is semi understandable even to somebody like myself who's definitely not a physicist. And the other thing which I really wanted to hear clarified was this thing about the operability, the the fact that this guy, that one of these, you know, top people within the the navy, had had vouched for the the operability, you know, the, that this stuff was actually demonstrable. Now, apparently, that's somebody called James Sheehy, and again, that's something that Kurt asks very directly about, and the way that that Pace actually. Uh, explains this is that it's not that he actually vouched for the fact that it was operable and and you know it was you know you could prove that it was all that it would work what it was more a case of is the the people that were actually reviewing the patent application didn't really fully understand how it worked and what they had to do is actually go back with some clarifications to say that actually the maths and the physics behind this technology works under existing understood physics you don't need to break the laws of physics as we understand them to be able to do this and once that clarification had actually been provided then they were willing to actually grant the patent application and Apparently, the the application was quite simply put, which was C appeal. So initially, they didn't want to grant it, but upon the clarifications which were given as part of this appeal, they were convinced that it would be operable. But that's not to say that you know demonstration of a craft took place, for example, or that somebody said you know came in and said look we've actually got craft that works and here's a video of it or something like that that wasn't actually the case it was just that they had to very thoroughly demonstrate how the actual calculations behind this technology uh, this theoretical technology would work so again that was a really interesting uh, thing that i thought was worth pointing out those were the kind of the two big things that i really wanted to hear about now then, let's go back into some actual uh, comments from within the body of the interview itself. So there were some really interesting comments. And as I've said, the, the calculations and the equations and everything is, is over my head. I'll, I'll freely admit that. No physicist, as you probably all know already if you listen to this podcast. But what I do try and do is kind of take on some of these complicated issues because I find it absolutely fascinating. And I try and understand it as best I can and present it in layman's terms, you know, that I can understand. And hopefully that might be helpful to some people who listen to this as well. And as I've said, I'm not a physicist, so if there's anybody who does listen to this who is a physicist, you know, or who knows a little bit more about it than I do, perhaps, and you might have anything to add or any discrepancies in what I've concluded, um, do let me know, because I'm all about, you know, trying to understand what's actually happening here, and I definitely have no ego when it comes to be proving wrong about things, um, you know try and be nice about it if i've got something wrong please but uh, yeah you know what i'm saying so here we go with my layman's terms explanation of what this tech actually is so something that's discussed quite a lot on on the uh, theories of everything podcast uh, with with uh, salvatore pais here is something called the pais effect and essentially what that is is bringing about certain conditions within a material specifically energy density and if you get certain conditions exactly right, you can essentially bring about the breakdown of space-time. So essentially what Pais describes is if you were to create so sufficient energy density within a material, you can bring about this void in the space-time continuum. And within this void, the normal laws of physics do not apply. In fact, there are no laws of physics in this void whatsoever. It's like um, like a quantum vacuum, I think he describes it as at one point. And there's literally nothing, there's no gravity, there's everything that applies that limits the movement of an object no longer exists in this void. And if you can imagine a craft kind of moving through a medium like air, 
you know, when you're moving through the air, it feels like there's no re- the resistance, but there actually is. You mo- you're not moving through a vacuum, you're moving through a medium. You know, that's what the air is. It's a gas. So obviously there's a very little resistance compared to other things. But if you move through water, you're going to have a lot more resistance because the material is much more dense and so on. And you've also got forces of gravity acting on that craft and and so on. So there's a lot of things that affect movement of an object through any particular medium. And if you get over a certain speed, the friction caused by the object moving through the air then starts to heat up the object and you get drag and you know aerodynamics actually plays a part in affecting the movement of this object as well it's why you know racing cars have got very specific designs to be able to cut through the air easier and fighter jets obviously do the same thing and they spend you know these companies spend millions of pounds working on those kinds of things because it it drastically alters how an object moves through a medium And if you were to create a pocket or a vacuum within space-time, none of those normal laws would affect the movement of an object anymore, which would, in theory, allow an object to behave in ways which are similar to what we witnessed the Tic Tac and other various UFOs uh, doing. Now, I have heard of this before, and I think other scientists have, have discussed various different ways to do similar things but specifically, what Pais talks about here is what what is referred to as the Pais effect. But I think he himself is quite uncomfortable referring to it as that. But I don't think there's any other way to call it, really. So we'll just call it that. And essentially, that involves using a plasma rather than a solid object. Because as, as Pais himself explains, it's much easier to create these conditions within a plasma rather than within a solid material because it's easier to achieve the correct energy densities in a plasma rather than in a solid material. And then apparently on top of that, if you apply a specific frequency of electromagnetic current pulsed through the actual material, and uh, there's an element of spin involved as well. So you're vibrating like uh, this this particular material, this medium, because it's a plasma, and you're also involving elements of a, a pulsed electromagnetic current and spin. And all of that actually can, can allow you to create these energy densities without as much energy input. Apparently, that's kind of a, a key part of it. And when you do that, you actually then can break apart the actual fabric of space-time. And that that creates what is known as the Pais effect, which is with you know this pocket of space time which then you can operate within that and the second episode that uh, Kurt is going to do actually is going to focus more on how you would use that to actually implement into various technologies which I believe the part two is going to be I'm not actually sure when it is to be honest but he did mention that it's going to be uh, coming soon and the previous one now is a couple of weeks ago and um I'm very excited to see the next one. I've actually sent some um, questions through to Kurt uh, to clarify a few things, again, with my layman's understanding. So he may or may not ask some of those questions. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But it's very interesting to me in general, the concept of you know using a, a pulsed current and vibration and a certain resonant frequency to be able to achieve you know a, a specific effect which allows you to move differently like move allows a craft to actually move differently and things like that one thing that it did make me think about is something that i go on about on the podcast quite a lot some of these unexplained structures in egypt and other places around the world as well you know like the the very very tightly interlocking walls which are some of the oldest walls in places like Machu Picchu and you know obviously in in, in Egypt you have things like the the 100 ton granite boxes and the unbelievably precise carvings and structures and it, it kind of made me wonder if if this actually is correct this pace effect can be generated by ha- having a, a particular you know set of conditions to allow an object to essentially fall within a a vacuum a void in in the normal space time is it possible that that may have actually been an element of that perhaps 
could have been stumbled upon by some ancient civilizations here on this planet. And that would certainly go some way to explain how they managed to manipulate solid granite blocks and move them around and, and create these unbelievably precise cuts and carvings, which perhaps there was some elements of something like the Pike's effect that allowed them to actually to, to do these things because it is really intriguing how that was managed to be achieved all the way back then which we don't exactly know even when that was but it was a long time ago you know thousands and thousands of years ago for sure and it's something that we would struggle to even replicate today and it's something i've wondered about is whether or not there may have been um, a civilization perhaps before the the younger dryas impacts and and before that the ice age that was brought about by the the, the cataclysm which happened around about 12,000 years ago um you know, maybe there was some kind of more advanced civilization that had stumbled upon some kind of way of using elements of something like the Pais effect. And I'm not suggesting they had spaceships that were triangular and they flew around in them back then or anything like that, but I'm just saying maybe they managed to just accidentally stumble upon something or maybe they they actually had quite a good you know knowledge of these things and they just bypassed a lot of other like for example if you can manipulate solid granite into any shape you want you wouldn't necessarily need plastics would you so that would explain why they didn't invent certain materials back then because you would have no need to do that if you can if you can manipulate solid rocks and things into whatever shapes you want and move them around it it's completely speculative that but it, it did make me think especially when you hear things like the uh you know the, the the baghdad battery for example we know that there were methods of creating certain types of electric current and it's not a, a stretch from there to assume that maybe they could pulse that current and maybe some of these chambers that, that were created with very very specific resonant frequencies within the chamber you know the dimension of the chamber itself is is, is a very very specific size that a, a certain standing wave would be able to uh, you know be maintained within that you have to wonder if maybe there were some elements there that don't really make any sense to us now because we don't understand things like this Pais effect fully at this point. But maybe, you know, let's say 15,000 years ago, before a cataclysm, a society did exist on this earth which had managed to stumble upon some kind of elements of that technology. Food for thought. But anyway, as I said, the the main thing is there is that um, it was an absolutely fascinating interview. Kurt Jaimungle is, is a real asset nobody can do it like kurt does it i mean i i would have no no uh, benefit to to interviewing salvatore pais i have no idea what he's talking about with a lot of the equations and things like that so it's just so fascinating to see kurt's perspective on it because he clearly is somebody who's very clued up on all the maths and the physics behind it so um yeah big big shout out to kurt and i really recommend going watching this i've watched it twice in full by this point and uh, it's really really interesting and worth mentioning as well though i just want to throw this out there it's not as though this is definitively a thing there are a lot of other scientists that don't agree with Salvatore Pais here and even people like Eric Davis this is actually discussed in the interview as well Eric Davis has got his own ideas about how this kind of thing might be achieved. Uh, Dr. Jack Sarfati has got other ideas which may be different again. Hal Puthoff has suggested his own concepts of as to how these kind of things may work. There's a lot of, of very prominent scientists who are willing to talk about this topic and go into you know the the science the, the theoretical science of how these kind of craft like tic tacs and ufos in general may actually operate and what's interesting to me from an outsider's kind of layman's point of view is they all seem to be going in the same vague direction but i don't think any of them have really cracked it yet now obviously salvatore pais himself claims that his his theories here you know his his uh, his concepts actually do stack up and they do work but that is just one viewpoint because obviously these other people that i just mentioned don't necessarily agree with him that it does work and he says in the interview as far as he knows nobody has actually done the experiments to actually get this thing to work now maybe you could argue that he has to say that 
he may know actually that they have done it, but he can't reveal that. That's a possibility. It's also a possibility that it literally hasn't been tried and nobody knows whether it does work. It's also a possibility that actually they have developed some kind of unbelievably unbelievably advanced tech which is operable that has nothing to do with what is being talked about here and it is a red herring. That seems a bit less likely in my opinion now because of, of just the way that he comes across, the way he talks about it doesn't suggest to me that that's the case but obviously that's completely open to personal interpretation. So it's important, I think, to bear that in mind. Not all the experts have a, a 100% you know, consensus agreement that this stuff works. You know, There are a lot of other very prominent physicists who, who have their own ideas that are different to this. But I still think it's very, very interesting to consider. And it's definitely telling that they're all going in a similar direction uh, in terms of what they think is the most likely explanation for how these objects move um, but as I say best thing to do go and watch the the whole interview yourself it's absolutely fascinating and I can't wait for the part two but I'm going to leave it there for now I would love to hear your thoughts as well so if anyone's got any ideas any any opinions to add feel free to get uh, contact me on twitter at ufo thinker as always always great to hear from people who listen to the show they drop me an email ufo thinker at hotmail.com or ufo thinker at protonmail.com for the secure email and um yeah just uh, thank you very much for listening there's also patreon as well if you if you do want to support the podcast that really really helps to keep everything running and there's uh, more and more people signing up to the patreon all the time which is great to see and thank you so much for the support if you're already supporting on patreon so i hope you've enjoyed listening to this roundup of the recent events and until next time take it easy stay curious and i'll catch you in the next episode UFO Thinker Podcast.